0: Thanks, David, Jen. Uh, Good morning. Good to see everybody here this morning. Welcome to Trinity Church. My name is DJ. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my pleasure to open God's Word this morning and lead us in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew today, uh, chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. We've got a high view of the Bible here at Trinity. We love the Bible. We believe it's how God speaks to us, how he communicates to us who he is, Uh, And what he desires from us. And so we spend time each week opening it up, walking through it sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph. We want to understand what he has to say to us through it. So that has us this morning in Matthew 4 verses 12 through 17. Uh, it's a text we were going to be studying last week until the snow uh, changed our plans somewhat. Uh, so hopefully the sermon this week is more like some brisket that stayed on the smoker for an extra two hours and less like a pizza that got left in the oven for an extra two hours. We're gonna hope it's the former, but we'll see. Uh, so join me this morning, Matthew 4, 12 through 17. And we're gonna talk a little bit this morning, uh, as the sermon title suggests, about a reversal of fortunes. Now, we love storytelling where things change dramatically, right? Maybe in, in a broad sense, we like, we like rags to riches kind of stories. You think of the classic Cinderella of this, this girl who comes from nothing from nowhere and ends up be, being a princess by the end of it. We enjoy stories like that where, where a character is transformed, where great good comes out of humble beginnings, and we enjoy storytelling as well where the drama builds and it looks like everything is going to go horribly wrong for our main character. And then out of nowhere, something happens that, that saves them, that, that, uh, that rescues them from a doom that is certain. In fact, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of the Lord of the Rings series, loved that particular kind of storytelling. Um, he loved it so much that he coined a term for it called eucatastrophe, uh, the term comes from the Greek word you, which means good, put onto catastrophe, which in classical literature was the way that a plot would unravel and resolve at the very end. And so Tolkien coined this term for an instance where a protagonist in a story is saved from almost certain impending doom by circumstances outside of their control. If you think of Tolkien's work, you see this idea of EU catastrophe pop up, maybe most famously uh, in the form of eagles, right? If you read The Hobbit, if you read Lord of the Rings, multiple times it seems everything is, is about to go wrong, and then the, evil, the eagles swoop in at the last second and save our heroes and their rescue. So Tolkien was fond of this kind of storytelling, and he was fond of it because he believed God was fond of this kind of storytelling. Uh, Tolkien believed that God was one who loved eucatastrophe, who loved pulling victory from sure and impending doom. In fact, Tolkien said that the incarnation of Christ, the coming of Jesus into the world, was the eucatastrophe of human history. It was the means by which human history, which was headed off the rails to certain and impending doom, was rescued, was brought back by something outside of of, of itself, And this morning, as we open this text in Matthew, we're going to see Matthew hint at this same sort of idea, that the coming of Christ into the world reverses the fortunes of the human race, in particular, in a very specific way, from a text that we might think at first glance is just a throwaway line, just a segue from one piece of the story into the next. But Matthew says it bears great significance in telling about what Christ came to accomplish and then serving as an introduction, as a launch pad for his message, inviting people to see themselves transformed, to, to walk out of darkness and into light by his gospel. So we're going to look at these few verses in Matthew this morning. We're going to look at how they picture this sort of you catastrophe of light coming from darkness. Uh, And we're going to look at what it has to say to us in our lives and our walks this morning. So join me, Matthew 4, we're going to read verses 12 through 17 together. Now when he, being Jesus, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray, ask for God's help, and we will dive into this text this morning together. Our God and Father, who brings light out of darkness and who has shown into our hearts through Christ, we ask you this morning that what we know not, you will teach us. What we have not, you will give us. What we are not, you will make us by the power of your Spirit to the praise of your glorious grace. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, as you read this text this morning, as we read these five verses or six verses, you might think at first, how, how, does this, how does this make any kind of point at all? Isn't this just a rearranging of the deck chairs, changing of the scene, right? Jesus was in Jerusalem, now he's going to Galilee. Like, he's just changing location. Why is this significant? It might seem in verses 12 and 13 that we're, we're seeing just happenstance, right? Just Jesus changing location out of wise necessity. We're told that when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. So let's set the table a little bit. What had happened to John? John? who's been a central character for us over these last couple of chapters. Well, John had been arrested by Herod Antipas, the son of the paranoid and brutal Herod the Great that we read about back in Jesus' birth narrative uh, as we went through the Christmas story. So why has he arrested John? Why has he had John in prison? Well, we'll get more detail later on in the book of Matthew, but the short version of the story is um, John's preaching was hitting a little too close to home for Herod. John was rebuking him publicly for many ways in which he had not lived up to the demands of God's law. In particular, Herod's divorcing of his first wife in order to go and take his brother's wife, who he wanted a little bit more. John had spoken out against this, and Herod was not a fan. And there's another element at work as well, which will be highlighted also later on in Matthew, and it's attested to by the Jewish historian Josephus, and that is that Herod was afraid of John. Right? He was afraid of John's influence. We've seen over the last couple of chapters that a lot of people from Jerusalem and the surrounding countryside were coming out to hear John preach. Many people were being baptized by him. John was, was starting to gather a crowd. He was starting to gather influence among the people. And since paranoia was a Herod family tradition, as we've seen, Herod is starting to worry, this guy has influence among the people. They like what he has to say, they respect him, they're listening to him, and he doesn't have good things to say about me. So what if he changes his message to rile the people up against me? They, they might listen. And so out of fear and anger, Herod has John arrested. He has him imprisoned. And so this explains why Jesus then, because of that, would withdraw from Judea and head to Galilee. It's not that Jesus is, is afraid of death. Obviously, we're going to see that come out very, very quickly in the story. But the time has not yet come for Jesus to be brought into direct conflict with the movers and shakers in Jerusalem. right? He's got a lot to do and say before that time comes. If we look back on his baptism a couple weeks ago, we talked about the fact that he has come to fulfill all righteousness. And there is a lot of righteousness that he will accomplish before coming into Conflict with Herod, with the Pharisees, with the chief priests, and the religious elite in Jerusalem. And so he heads back to the Galilean countryside. But we might expect that that would mean a return to his hometown, right? Heading back to Nazareth, going back to where he was from to begin with. But we're told that he doesn't do that, actually, that he goes somewhere else. Instead, he goes and dwells in Capernaum by the sea in territory that belonged to the tribes historically of Zebulun and Naphtali. And it's here that Matthew reveals that this is much more than happenstance moving about. So remember I said we might be tempted to read these verses as Jesus was there, situation caused him to decide to move here instead. Some sort of like if you and I move cities because of a job change, or we want to go to school and we up and we relocate and we go somewhere else. But Matthew says there's more at play here than simply that. That Christ moving and setting up camp in Galilee is actually a proclamation of reversal. It's a statement about what God is accomplishing through him and through his ministry. It's a promise of fortunes reversed. Right? He says here in verse uh, 14, after talking about what Jesus does, it was so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. That Christ relocating to Galilee, to this specific part of Galilee, is to fulfill prophecy. It's to fulfill a promise that God had made through the prophet Isaiah. So we need to ask ourselves, what was God promising through the prophet Isaiah? So Matthew quotes from Isaiah this text here where he talks about the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, of on them a light has dawned. So what was Isaiah talking about here? What does this prophecy, what does this proclamation mean? Well, much of the, the body of Isaiah's prophetic work was concerned with the sinfulness of Israel, how they had rejected God, how they had walked away, lived in sin, lived in rebellion, and were going to be judged by God by the coming of the Assyrians. Right? The Assyrians, this foreign power, were coming in, They were going to invade Israel, they were going to take God's people captive, and they were going to take them away in an act of judgment. But this was not the end of the story. Isaiah prophesied that there would be one who would come, a suffering servant who would rescue God's people, who would bring them back to God, and who would usher in this future new world, this new heavens, this new earth, these beautiful promises and prophecies. But much of Isaiah's prophecy is revolving around this coming Assyrian invasion, and this text here is no different. The territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, which would later on come to be known as the region of Galilee in Jesus' time, was in the northeast part of Israel. And it was the route that most outsiders used to travel into the area. Because of this, it was the first region to fall to the Assyrian invaders. When Assyria came rolling into Israel, this was the first area to feel the force of that attack. And it would have been the last glimpse of home that many captured Israelites ever saw as they were led away in chains to Assyria. This region, because of that, had seen a lot of suffering. It had experienced a lot of grief. But now, says Isaiah, light is going to dawn. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. This text is going to go on and it's going to give us a few verses later the promise that we recite at Christmas time a lot for unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given and he shall be called wonderful counselor, mighty god, everlasting father, the prince of peace. This is that promise that where darkness had reigned, where suffering had come, now light is breaking. Now a new promise has entered in. Uh, Teacher and scholar Alec Mateer said the first areas to fall to the Assyrians will be the first to see the messianic light. It's a reversal that's being promised here because the gospel is for the downtrodden. The gospel is for the weak. The gospel is for the suffering, right? Jesus himself is going to say that it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick, it's those who are in need of healing. And it's often against the darkest backdrops that the light of the gospel shines the brightest. It's that concept of eucatastrophe that Tolkien loved so much that from the very bleak, when we see light break forth, it shines all the brighter. It rings out all the truer. But there's another meaning at play here, and as well as we talk about those walking in darkness have seen a great light. Because usually when we see that kind of language in Scripture, it's referring to the fact that when we walk in darkness, it means we're walking in blindness to God and His Word. When you walk in darkness, you wake up in the middle of the night, your eyes haven't yet adjusted to the change of light, you'll grope around, if you're like me, you'll kick a chair and hurt your foot or whatnot. When we walk in darkness, we walk without anything to guide us. And so when the Bible uses that language, it uses it to speak about walking where we don't know God. We have nothing to lead us, and so we're groping around, we're stumbling, we're falling in darkness. And likewise, the Bible uses the imagery of walking in the light to be walking in light of what God has said, what God has revealed to us about himself, and we are able to move about freely and well because we can see clearly. Well, of all the regions of Israel, perhaps there were none that walked in darkness in that way quite as much as Galilee. Remember we said earlier that that it was the first area where the Assyrians rolled through, and that was because of its location, because it was a, a well and easily traveled route in that area. An area which was, had a lot of desert, had a lot of hostile environments, but Galilee was a relatively good land, and it was a good place to pass through. So think about Galilee in this region almost like an interstate town. If you're driving through middle of nowhere in, in Kansas or Wyoming, And there's a town that pops up right along the road. It's going to see a lot more influx of people than somewhere that's removed from the main roads and and out in the back country. And so because of this, because of this route right along, or because of its location right along this well-traveled route, Galilee was actually full of a lot of Gentiles and not just Jews. There were a lot of foreigners that were settled there. Some as a result of the Assyrian invasion years and years ago, and others because of the Greeks, the Romans, the others who had passed through this area over time. To the point where Bible scholar Craig Blomberg uh, asserts that at the time of Christ, in the first century, more than half the population of Galilee was Gentile. Something I'd never even really thought about, never considered. But Jesus, the area which he chooses to start his ministry is an area populated perhaps by a majority of outsiders, of non-Jews which is is a little bit backwards to what we would think, right? Wouldn't he show up at the the pinnacle, the capital of Judaism in Jerusalem? After all, he's going to say that his mission is primarily to the lost sheep of Israel, right? That's whom he was sent to speak to, to minister to, to proclaim and preach to. But we know that that's just the beginning of his message, right? As evidenced by the fact that we are sitting here today on the other side of the planet talking about it. That Christ's message was for the lost sheep of Israel, but it was also going to be headed out to all the globe. It was an invitation to all the world to come to know God, to walk in light of his word and his goodness. And so it would seem no mere coincidence that the epicenter of Jesus's ministry was not Jerusalem, was not the place where the movers and shakers of the time went, but it was Galilee, filled with Jew and Gentile alike, a place that would see Jesus interacting with all sorts of unlikely people, all sorts of people that we would think, well, Why would you you start there? Why would you talk to that person? Why would you minister in this environment? Because Jesus' mission was to Israel, yes, but it was bigger than that, and it held the promise of something that would change the entire world. We see this unfold in the book of Acts as the gospel breaks out from Jerusalem and heads out into the world. Listen to this text from Acts 13, verses 46 through 49. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out loudly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, speaking to Jews. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Paul and Barnabas, Paul is a, uh, is a missionary primarily to Gentiles. And that gets the Jews all riled up because they say, what are you doing talking to these people? And Paul says, well, we brought the message to you. You apparently deemed yourselves unworthy of eternal life, so we're going to the Gentiles. Because that's what the Lord has told us to do. And in fact, that's the promise that's existed since the Old Testament. It's not like Jesus just changed the game and made this up out of thin air. You go back through the Old Testament and there are promises upon promises that God's people were to be a light to the nations. The promise to Abraham is what? That all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And so as Jesus gets up and moves from Jerusalem and begins his ministry in Galilee, what might seem at first like a throwaway line, like a simple scene transition, Matthew says is full of significance. It's a reminder that God makes light shine out of darkness, that God goes to those who are sick and in need of a Savior, doesn't spend his time primarily with the well-to-do, with the comfortable, but he invites all the earth to come and live in light of his goodness and his glory. The gospel of Jesus isn't just for the happy and healthy. It isn't just for the church crowd or the super religious. The gospel of Jesus brings hope to those who have suffered, even to those who have suffered for generation after generation. It opens the eyes of those who have never clearly seen spiritual things before. And according to Matthew, that is why Jesus started his ministry in Galilee. So we see this proclamation of reversal. But there is another kind of reversal that comes into play down in verse 17. Because Jesus gets to Galilee, and from that time, Matthew tells us, Jesus began to preach. This is the launching of his public ministry. He is stepping out of John's shadow, and he's taking center stage himself. And he begins to preach, and what does he say? What is his message? Well, as it turns out, it's the exact same message John was preaching. Right? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I think it's notable here that Matthew sums up Jesus' preaching right, right This is obviously a summary statement. Jesus is not only ever saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But Matthew is summarizing his message. And he summarizes his message in the exact same wording in which he summarized John's message back in chapter 3. Exact same sentence. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is because Jesus' arrival in Galilee wasn't simply a proclamation of reversal it also brought with it a personal invitation to reversal. It wasn't just a proclamation that God is changing things, that he's calling light out of darkness, but it brought with it a personal invitation. Repent is the message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's remember back to Alex's message from a few weeks ago about the ministry of John the Baptist. John's message, of course, was one of repentance. The same message repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What did we say repentance was a few weeks ago? It's a changing of the mind. It's a changing of direction, a reversal of course, right? You were going this way, you were doing these things, but now you're changing your mind, you're turning around, and you're going this way instead. Repentance involves the heart, but it flows out of the heart and it changes your actions, it changes the trajectory of your life. We change going this way into going that way instead. And As I thought of repentance this week, it made me think of an old TV show from about 10 years years ago called My Name is Earl. Anybody watch My Name is Earl back in the day? Not very many. Okay, that's fantastic. My Name is Earl was about a redneck lowlife named Earl who was generally an all-around terrible person. He's not a good dude. Uh, Was out for himself, but, but had horrible luck at the same time, could never seem to get ahead. In fact, his luck was so awful that in, in the beginning of the show, uh, he, finds a, a winning, he gets a winning lottery ticket and wins a ton of money. And as he rejoices and celebrates, he runs out of the bar and into the street and gets run over by a bus. And he wakes up in a hospital room, and as he wakes up in the hospital room, he sees Carson Daly on the TV, and Carson Daly is talking about karma and how karma, the concept of karma, changed his entire life. And Earl says, that's it. That's why I have terrible luck, because I'm a terrible person and I have bad karma. And so Earl says, I'm going to change my life, and what he does is he writes down this giant list of all the bad things he's ever done, all the people he's ever wronged, and he sets out to go to each of the people on that list and make it right by doing something good for them instead. And so each episode of the show is Earl going to some person that he's wronged horribly and finding a way to make it right, to do something to change their circumstance. Now, we wouldn't necessarily agree with the motive of Earl's repentance there, right? You know, we're not believers in karma here, and I'm not telling you if you go out and do great things, great things are going to start happening to you. That's a lot of things, but it's not Christianity. But what Earl does get right is the nature of repentance, right? That it prompts you to change. It prompts you to do something differently, to quit going in this direction and carve out a new direction instead. And what we see here from this summary statement is that this concept of repentance, of a change in direction, of a change of heart, change of mind, was absolutely foundational to Jesus' message. If we look through the Gospels, we will see Jesus talking about repentance constantly and letting us know in many different ways of its importance. What are a few things that Jesus said about repentance? Well, for one, he said that His miracles and his wondrous signs were meant to lead people to repentance. We think of Jesus, and I I say Jesus and miracles, and you can probably think of all sorts of things that he did. Water into wine, healing people, raising Lazarus from the dead, all these things that make us say, wow, that's really cool. Jesus said the reason that those things happened was to draw people to repentance. Matthew 11, 20 through 21, he says, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Right? Jesus says to these cities where he's done miracles that If these Gentile cities from long ago in the Old Testament that God judged and destroyed, if they had seen what you've seen, they would have repented. And you haven't. Woe to you. Judgment is falling upon you because you've seen so much and you have not repented. Repentance is the reason that he did the mighty things that he did. He also had his followers call people to repentance. It wasn't just his message. He sent out his disciples to say the same thing in Mark chapter 6. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. What did they go out and proclaim? That people should repent. Central to the message. Jesus, when he comes into conflict with the religious leaders, one of the things they criticize him for is who he spent his time with, that he hung out with sinners. Well, Jesus said the reason that he did that was because of the need for repentance, right? I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, Luke 5.32. Jesus said that tragic deaths should serve as a reminder for us to repent because we will all face God one day. Right In Luke chapter 13, the disciples are talking about these tragic things that had happened and asked, you know, are those people worse sinners than anybody else because they died in this horrible way? And Jesus begins to talk about a couple things that had just happened in in the country at that point. And in 13, 4 through 5 of Luke, he says, Those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Right, that's our, that's our inclination is we see something bad happen to somebody and we're like, Earl, oh, we think it must be karma, right? They must have done something wrong to deserve that. And Jesus says, were those 18 people that tower fell on? Were they worse than everybody else? No. So what's the point? The point is, if you don't repent, you will perish just like they will. You will meet God one day, whether a tower falls on you or whether you live to be a hundred and die of old age. Repent. And Jesus said that repentance would characterize his gospel that would go out to the ends of the earth. Luke 24, 45 through 49. After his resurrection, then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer. And on the third day, rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from jerusalem you are witnesses of these things and behold i am sending the promise of my father upon you but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high He's died, he's risen again, he's gathered the disciples together, he's sending them out. Why is he sending them out? So that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in my name to all nations. That's the crux of Jesus' message. That's the so what of his gospel. Right? We love the gospel here at Trinity. Trinity. If you've been here for very long or you spend much time here, you're going to hear the gospel talked about an awful lot. The fact that Christ came, he lived, he died, he rose again to pay the penalty for sins. We love the gospel. But the gospel has a so what, right? We tell the story of Jesus, but we don't just leave it on the shelf. It demands something of us. The so what of the gospel is repent and believe. Repent and Turn from your sins and believe in Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a call to repentance. It is absolutely central and critical to what Jesus proclaimed. And it's not simply a one-time application fee to get into the Christian life. But it's something that we should be constantly doing, should be a constant part of who we are as we walk and follow Christ. Repentance should characterize all of our living. It's not an event, but it's a process of growing in grace. It's how we draw closer to Christ. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is going to address several churches whose love for him has gone cold and stale. But keep in mind, he's addressing churches, Christians. And what does he call them to? He calls them to repent. Well, I've already repented of my sins. I'm a Christian. I'm following Jesus. It's not a one-time thing. They needed continual repentance and grace for the sins that they continued to war against in their own lives. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer who nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany to challenge the Roman Catholic Church, which he was a part of. He saw their abuses and he said, we need to reform, we need to change. And what was his first statement, one of 95, is that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Luther saw that grace had become cheap, that the church was buying and selling it for profit. He said, that's not what repentance looks like. It's supposed to characterize all of what we are, who we are, what we do. If all of this is the case, if Matthew can summarize Jesus' preaching by saying, what is his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If that's the case, it presses a very important point home to us, and that's this. If the gospel that you've believed doesn't call you to repentance, it is not Jesus' gospel. If the gospel that you proclaim to others does not call them to repentance, it is not Jesus' gospel. So that, that prompts some questions, some tough questions for us this morning. When was the last time you repented? When was the last time you felt the weight of sin pressing in on you and you changed direction because of it? You were going this way and you started going this way instead. As you answer that question, ask yourself is repentance a regular part of your routine? Is it something that characterizes your Christian living? Do you regularly apologize to your friends, to your spouse, to your parents, to your kids, to those who are in authority over you, to those who you are in authority over? Do you regularly apologize to God? When you approach God in prayer, do you own and admit your sinfulness? I think most of us who are Christians would say, yeah, yeah. But do you do it in the general and abstract, or are you specific? Because I think it's easy. This is one thing that, that is, a, is a trap and a, and a fight for me. It's easy to say, I'm a sinner, because I'm supposed to say that, right? We're all, we're all sinners. Everybody sin, falls short of the glory of God. I'm a sinner. Sure, God, I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. But am I specific? Do I own specifically before God where my shortcomings are? And ask for grace to overcome those things. Ask for God to help me change, change direction, repent. Do you ask God for forgiveness specifically, growing in grace? Now, maybe you say, hey, but I'm forgiven in Jesus, right? I'm forgiven once for all by what he's done, so, so I don't really need to keep asking for forgiveness because I'm already forgiven. Well, that... that seems like it makes sense, right? Except the Bible doesn't say it that way. The Bible doesn't see it that way. The Apostle John in 1 John 1, 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, okay, if statement, if is always followed by a then. The then happens if you meet the condition of the if. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And John is writing to a church, He's writing to believers. And he says, God will forgive us if we confess our sins, that forgiveness and repentance are intertwined. And it's to be a part of our ongoing Christian living. When was the last time you repented? When was the last time you approached God with guilt weighing you down and asked for his grace to change direction? Now, on the other hand, maybe you've grasped this truth. Maybe you could name me the last 37 times that you repented yesterday, but you live in fear of this, right? You think, what happens if I win the lottery today and I run out celebrating in the street and get hit by a bus and die, and there's something that I didn't repent for in those last few seconds? Or there's something that I did yesterday that I forgot to repent for, am I doomed? Will God accept me? Or will he punish me in hell forever because I didn't, I didn't, I didn't confess? And so since I didn't confess, he's not going to forgive. Your repentance is not purchasing your forgiveness. Your repentance is not purchasing your forgiveness. Jesus already took care of that, Right? We've sang about this morning that we have hope because he has bought us with his own blood. He has accomplished something on the cross that there is no need for you to add to. You can never add to it. You can never subtract from it. His redemption, his purchasing of sinners is perfect. So when we repent, we're not repenting in order to transactionally get his forgiveness each and every time. But rather, it is acknowledging our need of him, acknowledging that I need more grace. I need more mercy because I continue to sin. God, help me to change, to grow, to transform, to look more like you. Finish what you have started in me, confident that we will receive it, confident that when I go to his throne and I confess my sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins justice demands that he forgive us. Why? Because Christ has paid for it. Christ has covered my sin in full and in total. So if this notion of confession and repentance brings fear to your heart, brings anxiety that what if I'm not fully forgiven, you're not purchasing anything. Trust in Christ who is full of mercy, abounding in loving kindness. When we approach him He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That one sentence is a summary of Jesus' ministry and message. As we head out from here, we're going to start to unpack that summary and see all the details, the wonderful, beautiful, exciting details of how Jesus interacted with those unlikely people that he met in Galilee. How he healed the sick, opened the eyes of the blind, did all of these things to show people their need for him, their need for God, their need for repentance. We're going to hear the things he taught that challenged the religious leaders, that spoke hope to people who were downcast and forgotten. We're going to see this summary unpacked, but do not forget in the least that repentance is the core of his message. When Matthew is is pressed to put what Jesus said into one sentence, into one command, it's repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what do we do with this? What kind of questions do we need to ask ourselves this morning? What kind of questions do we need to ask ourselves as we go about our week? Well, Well, first... We learned this new word this morning, catastrophe." Is your gospel that you believe, that you preach, is it a gospel of catastrophe? Does it bring light out of deep darkness? Does it shine light in dark places? Does it reverse the fortunes of the downcast, of the outcast, of the forgotten? Or does it just make you a little cozier in your own well-lit room? Has God given you a heart to see those who are walking in darkness see a great light? That was you. That's me. That's all of our condition apart from Christ. Has God given you a desire for that? If someone were putting together a top ten list of qualities that characterize your faith, does repentance make the list? Do you regularly humble yourself before God in repentance? Is it part of your, of your routine, of your spiritual discipline? Do you regularly humble yourself before others in repentance? You show me someone who's quick to repent when they wrong another person. I'll show you someone who's probably quick to repent when they wrong the Lord. You show me someone who, who does not repent easily, who does not seek apology or does not ask for, for grace from another person when they've wronged them, I'll show you someone who's probably hesitant to do it to God. It's a picture. Our outward life is usually a picture of our inward spiritual life. Do you regularly humble yourself in repentance? And when you have the chance to talk about your faith with others, is an invitation to repentance part of the equation? Does the gospel invite change, transformation, or is it just a cool-sounding message that leaves people the way that you found them? Is repentance as central to you as it is to Jesus? And if you're new to the message of Jesus... Or maybe you just feel like it became to you this morning, even though you might have heard it a thousand times before. Have you ever repented? Have you ever taken that first step of humbling yourself before God, acknowledging that you have rebelled against Him, and you're in need of grace? You're in need of a change of direction that only He can accomplish in you. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Your time is is short. You will see God one day. You will stand before him. Repent or you too will likewise perish. Maybe you've professed faith before, but you haven't walked with the Lord in some time. Right? You, you could point back to when you were baptized. You could point back to when you prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, whatever it might be. But you know that, that faith is not a reality in your heart right now. Maybe you wonder if you're really a Christian at all. I have good news. If you've never truly trusted Jesus before, like we talked about earlier, what is the invitation for you? It's repent and believe the gospel. If you have trusted Jesus before, but your walk has been cold for 30 years, what's the invitation for you? Repent and believe the gospel. If you're walking closely with Jesus day by day, but you royally screwed up this morning, and you're in need of grace right now, and you feel that hanging over you, the invitation for you is to repent and believe the gospel. Christ is sufficient. For the first time that you repent, for the thousandth time that you repent, he stands ready to give more grace. When you confess your sins, you will find a Savior who is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's what Jesus came to do. That's who he is, and that is the invitation to us. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and know that promised grace awaits you, wherever you are, whatever your need, whatever your situation. Pray with me this morning. Father, we we are in need of grace. We gather here as your church this morning not because we're people who aren't in need of grace but because we are people who are acutely aware of our need of it, of our need of you. We have sinned against you. Father, we can all stand before you and say, I am a sinner. But Father, in the quiet of our hearts right now, help us to to identify the ways in which we have sinned, the ways in which we fall short give us grace to change, to overcome, to change our direction, to repent, to walk in a new light, not as people who stumble in darkness. Father, we thank you for sending Christ. Thank you for sending him to dwell, not with the elite, not with the comfortable, but into the land of those who had walked in darkness that they might see a great light. Thank you for bringing light out of darkness, who is a God, for being a God, who loves telling stories where fortunes are reversed because we are all in desperate need of reversal. God, make us aware of our state before you and make us doubly aware of your grace that you have poured out, that you lavish upon us. Father, if someone is here this morning who has never repented, who has never turned from you, never turn from sin, never turn to Christ. May this be the morning that you draw in their heart and that they come to life, that they walk in a new direction. And Father, for those of us who have been transformed, who have been set on a new path, Father, may you further refine our walk. May you bring to our attention where we fall short, where we need to change, where we need to redirect that we might glorify you. Give us grace, we pray. Give us mercy, we pray. God, that we might bring you glory and that we might proclaim a message to the world that is your message. May people be able to summarize our preaching, our teaching, our living in the same way they summarize Christ. May people see us and understand their need to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God, fill us with grace, fill us with power, fill us with boldness, Fill us with love and compassion that we might be obedient to live in this way. And God, be glorified. May the glory not roll to us, but may it come to you. May people see your glory by the way in which we live. We ask in Christ's name, amen.